This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and today we have a very fun episode talking about Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock is one of my favorite movie directors, and he's someone that really helped me get into film. So this is great that I finally get a chance to make a whole podcast dedicated to him. It's something that I've kind of been playing around in my head for a while, and now I'm finally doing it. And to help me, uh, I've got a great special guest today. It's Zach, who is the host of Radio Camp Half-Blood, a read-along podcast. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing today? I am great. Uh, it's nice. We're, you know, emailing back and forth, and now we finally get a talk, not necessarily face-to-face, but ear-to-ear, uh, and we had some good pre-show talking about Hitchcock. Uh, are you excited to talk about Hitchcock? It's, it's The suspense is just killing me. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Suspense that Hitchcock himself would love. Um, all right. Uh, so I guess the, a good first jumping off point is, uh, what was your, your introduction to, to Hitchcock? How old were you? How did that sort of transform the way you, you either watch movies or viewed movies in general? Well, for me, I, I have to give all my credit to my uncle who, uh, showed me a lot of movies that maybe you should not have shown like a 11 to 12 year old. And one of them was actually the very first and I can always still remember is Psycho. That was one of the first like horror movies that blew my mind. I, prior to that, I had watched a lot of universal classic monster movies and Godzilla movies, but it was like Psycho was one of those ones. I'd still close my eyes and just think about the ending of that movie with the spooky skeleton. And it still at that time gave me creeps. Yet, I watched The Birds and I was just like, this is okay. <laughs> That's funny. Um, for me, I think I, I must have been around nine or ten years old. I can't remember it exactly. And I was with my mother at a library and looking through the, the movies and something caught my eye and I'm pretty sure it was the birds and she let me borrow and we watched it together and it was kind of freaky for me. And we ended up getting something that was a little bit less scary because I've never been good with horror movies. Uh, and so I think we got North by Northwest next. And, and both of them were, were pretty instrumental in being like, wow, there's a different kind of movie than just the usual kids' fare that I was used to watching, whether it was animated or just general family films. Uh, so it was pretty crazy for me to actually see that sort of thing. It took me a while to really get into Hitchcock, but once I was a teenager... You know, I, I've definitely been a huge fan of his ever since. So, uh, so it seems like we're on, on similar pages, but as far as approaching it on very different ways, cause you seem to be much more of a horror buff than I am. Yeah. No, horror is like my, the genre. Like the sad thing is, is I will put on movies like Evil Dead 2 or I'll put on like a, like I can even put on the thing and it puts me right to sleep. Like I just like, <laughs> it's amb, it's really sad to say that it's ambient noise, like all these disturbing <laughs> images. I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm really tired. I just, I just like doze off, not because they're boring movies, but because I've seen them so many times. And I guess even as like a teenager, that's when I really discovered my passion for a lot of old movies, but also like Hitchcock and just how he had this huge wealth of a library, which a lot of it at the time was public domain. So you could just watch it on YouTube or any place that, you know, sold it for like a nickel. Yeah. 
That's that's interesting. Yeah, for me, uh, I guess because I never watched horror movies growing up, it, it's still something I'm trying to get used to. I love the classic horror movies now, the, especially like the old Universal monster movies. Um, but I, I'm I'm still slowly working my way up. I, I prefer more of the thrillers than the full on horrors. Um, I, I have to pick and choose what I'm I'm, I'm willing to watch. Um, I guess, uh, let's get this back on, on track for Hitchcock. Um, what, what are your, when someone says that name to you, whether it's a casual movie fan or like a real cinephile, what conjures in your head about him as a person or his legacy? Uh, for me, it has always been, cause I've, I've lived in good old California for most of my life. I've gone to Universal Studios. I've seen the Psycho House, the one on the stage. And for me, every time I think of, when I think of Hitchcock, I always think of kind of like, almost like Pleasantville where everything's nice. Then all of a sudden you just think of like the sinister aspects of what happens behind closed doors or just, you know, the clenching your teeth and just kind of like the fear of like, you know, it's going to happen, but how is it going to happen type of suspense? Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um I think the more I've delved into his filmography, the more I kind of have a harder time to pin down exactly who, what, what his work is, because it really is all over the place. The, the more in depth you get, he definitely like has his comedies. He has his more straight up mysteries compared to some of the thrillers and then more straight up horrors. It, it really is all over the place for him. Yeah. And that's kind of the unique thing about Hitchcock is. That there's so many different varieties of genres that he worked in that it wasn't just the weird thing is people perceive him as like one of the horror legends, but he made things that weren't horror for the longest time it was only up until like the late fifties to early to mid sixties that people kind of like associate with him, though there's so many different movies he made prior to that that like there's like certain directors that are just known for horror like Wes Craven or something. And that's what you associate it with. But with Hitchcock, it's kind of the exact opposite almost and how it's like he's more associated with suspense and mystery and almost like the precursor to the action movie with like North by Northwest. Yeah, you you definitely see where the influences go. It was directly influential to the early James Bond films, and I, I rewatched that for the first time in several years, I think a month ago, and, and those influences could not be more prominent where it's almost one-to-one -one the sort of similar set pieces that popped up in those early Bond films. Oh, yeah, no, most definitely, especially with Bond and how it became almost it's kind of like a Hitchcock film and James Bond filmed for prior to, you know, when they got like really schlocky, which I still like schlocky James Bond. But it's like they almost were pretty much hand in hand because they were good, like espionage stories or like, you know, lovers turning against each other or just having like the moments where it's just like you like gripping the seat of the chair that you're sitting on while you're watching the movie. Like, how is he going to get out of this one? <laughs> uh I, I think it when if i was asked about who hitchcock is as a person for me the things that really pop into my mind first is the idea of of strong female stars in an era where there wasn't a lot of, of strong female marketing going on um even though as we know today definitely would be a lot more of a complicated relationship bordering on you know some some of it being maybe 
abusive, hostile work environment, especially as far as verbal ways go or psychological, especially some of the things he put through Tippy Hedren on the bird set and, and other films. Um, I, I, I don't know if we now look back with the rose colored glasses at the way he, he was as a director. Do you feel that way? Well, I mean, it depends. It's like one of those weird things where it's the old way of thinking about getting that. You, you got to get that performance. It's the same with, with like Shelley Duvall and uh, Stanley Kubrick and how mm-hmm. pretty much Stanley Kubrick just, pretty much waterboarded this poor girl but you know we consider good old the shining to be one of the greatest movies of all time whereas you know the birds is still a really good movie but it's like one of those things it's like that's like the old thing you got to get that performance because you know film stock ain't cheap (laughs) yeah um and i also think the other thing about him is, is this sort of cult of personality uh we know him so well as far as his his introductions good evening i'm alfred hitchcock uh with his you know his droll british accent and very rarely was there a director that had such a public persona in, in that era so we have so much footage of him and especially being basically the the stanley of his era by appearing in every single one of his movies too which is like an interesting thing having a director because i was actually just thinking about that like he predates like the stanley cameo and everyone used to be like where's the alfred hitchcock cameo and it's such a weird thing like before that what was like a director that was like almost the face of cinema itself you can't really think of anybody really not even like there's no one you can really think of besides alfred hitchcock who was kind of like the face of cinema like you knew who who he was as a director to like a general audience not just people that were just like would go to the movies every day and be like oh yeah that's obviously a todd browning movie oh that's obviously like a dw griffith movie like this is an alfred hitchcock movie we're all gonna go to like pretty much the equivalent of like at that time, I would imagine like a film serial is like the new Alfred Hitchcock movies coming out, guys. We all got to like hunker in the car and go and pay a really exorbitant fee of like a nickel to go see it. <laughs> yeah, you got to go to the Nickelodeon. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you know, it's interesting because that reminds me of uh, doing a bit of research, not in not for this, but in general reading about older directors, uh, much like how actors were never the original draw of film until they were suing the studios to even have their names and credits directors were were very similarly had stock in as far as their the production companies go they were just a hired gun to be there to yell action and cut but it was the studio's film and i think if we were to compare anyone of being the face of cinema at the time it would maybe be someone like david oselznick which he has a very interesting relationship with hitchcock himself uh but i can't think of another director until hitchcock came around that was you know as you said such a face of cinema where you would be willing to be like Hitchcock's names on the outside the the marquee. We're going in and see it regardless of what it's about, who's in it, genre, anything like that. It's kind of like one of those things like, oh, Alfred Hitchcock, he do no wrong type of thing. Like you go in, you're expecting like quality mm-hmm. a little bit. It's like kind of like the Nintendo stamp of approval. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, finish this. I got one interesting anecdote. Uh, I don't know if, if you know this or not, but this podcast is called ContraZoom. I'm pretty sure I've told the story on this podcast before many episodes ago. Uh, and when I was coming, trying to come up with a name with my original co-host, Andreas, um, 
we were looking up different movie terms and things like that. And we couldn't find something that was, you know, snappy and witty and or interesting. Uh, and also wasn't already taken. And, uh, and we can and I came across this name ContraZoom, which, uh, in other words means Dolly Zoom, which was invented by Hitchcock in the film Vertigo, uh, where it's when you have a camera on a dolly track and when you pull the dolly track backwards, you zoom in. So the famous shot in Vertigo in the bell tower, that is a ContraZoom shot. That seems like such a really interesting thing because uh, Hitchcock created what we consider now like huge staples in filmmaking, such as not really the dolly shot, but like the one I keep thinking of is I think it's in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where it's like the huge like crane shot where it goes down and it keeps going down until you get into the woman's hand and she's holding a key. That's notorious. Oh, that's notorious. Thank you. Yes. There's so many movies that get mixed up, but it's like you have like these these staples of things, especially... Even the famous shower scene in Psycho, that's now a staple in movies where it's like having like the false starts or having mm-hmm. like the, the first the kill in a slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Especially in terms of, of editing what he was able to do with that. Well, yeah, there's also, I remember like when I was studying film, there's the, like the montage where it's just, there's three things, like a woman, a baby, and then someone that's dead. And then they showed a picture of like, uh, Alfred Hitchcock just making silly faces, and it's like you get different interpretations, even though nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember. Uh, was that like uh, Eisenstein's theory? Yes, I think so. It's like yeah. you have like three images, and you can change the audience's perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, even though it's a blank face that you're looking at, depending on what it cuts to, you'll the audience will interpret it differently. Yes. Yeah. Uh, All right. We're going to take a a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to uh, kind of dive in a little bit deeper. So we were talking a bit before about our introductions to Hitchcock and what his legacy is. I guess the best thing to start off with is, uh, as we're talking about this, do you have any blind spots as filmography you either haven't seen or maybe you haven't seen for a really long time and you just want to get it out there that you're not going to be super knowledgeable about these movies? Well, a lot of the stuff that I'm not super knowledgeable about actually is a lot of his earlier work. I've only seen maybe two of his silent films and the one movie that I even though it's like one of my favorites, Rope, I haven't seen in probably like a y- couple years. Though it's kind of like one of those where, you know, if I probably watch it now, it, I would appreciate it for different things. But like what I got out of it was it's, I consider it like a staple. But other than that, there's like, I, I've seen most of his major works. I actually spent the last couple nights watch rewatching a bunch of his stuff. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, for me, I've, uh, there, there's definitely a bunch that I still haven't gotten around to seeing. I think the major ones that will probably 
hinder me a bit in this discussion are, are movies like Shadow of a Doubt, Foreign Correspondent, Turn, Torn Curtain, Saboteur, and The Lodger being his, his best-known silent era film. Yes, which has a lot of amazing shots in it that you would be surprised how they got them, even in silent movie uh, territory. Uh, I've seen. I've definitely seen some uh, some clips from it, like the glass ceiling. Bit. Yes, that's like the most famous one, and it's like mm-hmm. how people how he got that. Yeah, which is, was really interesting. Um, now, I guess if you were to recommend one film of his to watch to someone who has never seen a Hitchcock film, what would be the one that you think would be the best introduction for someone? For me, I'd actually ask them a questions either either or. It's like, do you want a monster movie or do you want like a movie that's just going to scare you to go monster movie. I would go just watch the birds. <laughs> if you want like a traditional, like horror suspense movie, I would tell them to go watch psycho. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would you choose those two? I would choose the birds because for a person that likes, cause everyone has a different taste in movies. Usually if they want like a movie, that's like a, like a more of like a monster movie or something like, you know, they can get into it and you understand the premise really quickly. Killer birds that mess things up. You watch that and it has like some great atmospheric stuff as well as it's kind of like uh, if you showed it to a younger audience, they might be afraid of birds as my sister is terrified of birds. <laughs> but it's like if you want more of the traditional like kind of like here, here is like the one of the pillars of the horror movie genre that you should watch. And then it's like you, you they see it and it's like this huge twist at the end and stuff. It's like, if you like that, come on, we'll, we'll watch North by Northwest. We'll watch Vertigo. We'll watch Mr. and Mrs. Smith. We'll watch Rear Window. And it's like one of those things. It's kind of like you have to ease them into because, you know, people have different tastes in movies and trying to, f- I'd rather play it safe first before you show them something like Rope or Rebecca or something that's kind of like, like a little more different than what they're used to watching. Because with mm-hmm. the weird, like, general movie-going audience, they're expecting, like, explosions or something that's, like, not a slow burn. Like, they usually expect, like... And, like, old-time monster movies used to take, like, maybe half of the movie before they have to reveal the monster. Now it's within the first 30 seconds. If you watch the new Godzilla, King Kong, or even Pacific Rim, it's in, within the first... Actually, God- Godzilla 2014 isn't a good example, but they're <laughs> in the first, like, 30 seconds of the movie, you see the monster. Yeah, uh, I, I think those are both good picks. What I, I, for me, I would probably say Rear Window. Uh, and the reasoning behind that is I think it does, Rear Window probably does the best job straddling this sort of more mystery thriller angle with the, with the horror side of things. Um, whereas Psycho, as great as I think that one is, I think that's probably his only full-blown horror movie and there isn't really anything quite like it whereas i think if you showed someone rear window and they really liked it they're like oh yeah i love the sort of anxiety behind it you can kind of pivot off from there and maybe go with one of his his other more mysterious ones whether it's uh vertigo or the birds or things like that and if they like the the straight up the more of the horror side of things then it would be easier to sort of switch over to to psycho yeah, especially if I had to give like more choices, I'd probably give maybe Strangers on the Train a chance. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's another really good one because the weird thing is like you can like break it up and like, hey, if you want to see like, a good action movie, I would show them North by Northwest. If you want to see a good like suspense or not even like a whodunit, but it's like a great mystery, I would show them Strangers on a Train or Rear Window. Yeah, because the weird thing is is like 
there's like this weird thing where they keep remaking Hitchcock movies, like Rear Window. They remade it with Shia LaBeouf, Pleasantville. <laughs> no, Suspiria. Uh, Suspiria. yes, yeah, I think that's what it's called. I think it's yeah, it's called Suspiria. Yeah. And then they did a shot for shot remake with Vince Vaughn of Psycho, which was really weird. But you know, it's like those weird things where maybe you want to like stay away from the remakes or like the ones that everyone kind of has the cultural like meiosis of. Mm-hmm. And try to go towards more like Strangers on a Train, Vertigo, or even I actually kind of really enjoy Rebecca. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I think Strangers on a Train would probably be a really good one, especially because when you start looking at his career of someone who's never seen his stuff, his black and white and his color films are very different tonally a lot of the time. Because when he was introducing color into his cinema i feel that really took on a new life for him uh where he had to kind of refine his voice again well i mean it's also like you have to worry about different elements now because as a person that i work in a lot of theaters is that color means everything especially in a visual medium when it's just black and white you can just you know flub on some things like how was it i think the original superman outfit was all in black and white like the, just the costume because it's like we don't have to pay for color and stuff but the second they had to make the batman they're like oh we can't do that we have to have color we have to have it all super flashy mm-hmm. and it's like more of a headache rather than yeah. like we're just trying to tell a story now we have to add all these different elements on top of that which is nice that i appreciate it that he made psycho black and white after he had started making color films and after it was no longer fashionable to make black and white films yeah and it's also like one of those things where with having it as a black and white movie, it also kind of makes it a more timeless movie and kind of like one of those where it's like going back to the old kind of like rules of film in a sense of having it black and white and having like you're comfortable with that format because, you know, everyone grew up with black and white. But the second like, oh, this is the main character. And then when that twist happens, it's like, wait, what's going on? Yeah, I, I, it probably even played into, definitely played into the audience's preconceived notions as far as what a black and white film should be, and and definitely subverting that. Yeah, I mean, there's also like I want to say Thirty Nine Steps was actually a it was a 3D movie originally. So Hitchcock is not one of those people that the he even that's kind of where it's like he plays with trends a little bit but he also is like willing to push the edge on certain things yeah i think that was uh that was dial m for murder and he was playing with uh the giant props in that oh yes i'm sorry yeah it was dial m for murder it's okay like like you said like a lot of his movies kind of start to blend in once you you're yeah. looking at there's been times where i'm trying to find a i was trying to find what movies i hadn't seen i'm like have i seen this movie that this two sentence plot description sounds like at least three of his films yeah no it's it's really funny it's like also i'm like i have a list in front of me and it's like oh wait is it it's like that's the weird thing it's like when it comes to a filmmaker that has so many movies you know, it's it's bound to happen where you'll make some mistakes, but it's like, even if you make a mistake, you might be in for a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, now, speaking of which, I, I think that's a, a nice little segue. Um, Hitchcock is often said to have tiers of films. Uh, I was wondering if we can maybe create what, you know, these tiers would be and where he would sort of stack up with other directors both of his era and, and current ones, I think the best way to start out with it is, you know, what are his Mount Rushmore films? 
his four greatest films. I think it's very easy to point out a, a handful where he is above and beyond not only his contemporaries, but even going today, if you were to make a list of greatest films of all times, you could probably easily include four of his movies, even a couple more in that category. Is that something you would agree with or disagree with? Well, I think that's also one of those things you have to keep in mind is that there's now a term because of Hitchcock, a Hitchcockian twist or a Hitchcockian movie. Mm-hmm. So it's like one of those staples when it comes to making a movie. And I think with Hitchcock, there's so many different ways that we could look at this that, you know, having the Mount Rushmore effect, I think really, you know, having those movies that he's known for, but then you can like look at it from another person and they might have a different, totally different, like H- H- Mount Rushmore view of it. If, all right, well, let's, let's say. You know, you and I, we're, we're going to be the ones chiseling this new, uh, new mountain of stone and it's going to be permanent. And these are, we are crowning the four greatest Hitchcock films. Uh, throwing some names out there. I think the ones that you absolutely have to include would be Psycho and Vertigo. Oh, those are like the, the first, those are like the faces of it. Yeah. That, that would be like your, your Lincoln and Washington, basically. Yeah, I think the other two would have to be. I would probably put Strangers on a Train. You would? I would probably, yeah, because it's like such a, it's one of those movies that you can watch and it's simply just two guys meet on a train, like, hey, let's kill each other's, you know, problems. And then it just trickles down from there. Okay. Simple, simple, but, you know, it's a very effective movie. Mm hmm. And I think there's a lot of, uh, sort of, subtextual information going on with that film especially of you know the idea of suppressed homosexuality going on behind the scenes um i like your your inclusion of strangers on the train i would probably counter with the other two rushmore films being rear window and rebecca where would you stand on on them as being debatable up there I would probably put Rear Window just because it's one of those movies where it's a movie that isn't just about someone that's like a peeping Tom, but it's also it's kind of like a movie that's like a metaphor about the movie going in general. It's like, we all like to watch our trash movies. We love watching like almost like terrible things unfold on the screen, but we can't avert our eyes usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Rear Window is is definitely... The one up there, I, you know, I already said that it was the one that I would recommend to someone. I would put it up there probably as, I don't want to say it's my favorite. I think Vertigo is probably my favorite, but I would think Rear Window would be, would be right up there behind it. Yeah, especially with like the themes and kind of like, it's one of those great, like, whodunit type of movies where it's like, where you also kind of doubt yourself. Same as with the main character doubts himself. Mm-hmm. And both performances in that movie are fantastic because you got James Stewart and Grace Kelly, and they both give phenomenal performances. Yeah, it's one of those where, you know, Grace Kelly was a person that worked with Hitchcock for like almost five movies. It was great seeing the way that their careers had intertwined. And for my last one, I don't, it's kind of like really hard to say because it's like one of those things. If I had to pick one, it wouldn't be The Birds, actually. I think it might actually be the girl vanishes or the woman really yeah because it's it's one of those movies where it's very early on in the 30s and it's dealing with things kind of like people lying and people like 
I don't know. It's like one of those movies that if you watch it even now, it's it kind of it still centers around like a, a very strong female character for the time. And you're dealing with like you know themes of people lying, people can, trying to like tell you you're wrong. Yet it's one of those movies that I think is kind of almost underlooked in the 30s. It's one that I haven't seen, so I can't really comment much more on that. They kind of made a remake of it a couple, not a couple years ago, maybe 10 years ago at this point, about a woman who built a plane and her and her daughter go like on the first test flight and her daughter disappears and everyone keeps telling her she's crazy, that she never had a daughter. Oh, is that the, the, that Jodie Foster movie, uh, Flight Plan? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I, I think I vaguely have seen some of it. Like, it was on in the background, and I'd watched it's some like, of it, but it's, I don't think I've seen it all. They, they've, so they've technically remade it in the century. It's sort of one of these, like, uh, gaslighting type of movies? Yeah, it's a little bit of a gaslighting type of movie. Huh, that's interesting. But it all takes place on a train, and they're all in the middle of the pretty much like the Alps. All right, that's really interesting. Uh, I'll have to check that out then. All right, so what would you say, what would you call the, those are the greatest movies of all time we were talking about, and they would rank right up there if you were making a list of all-time greats. I, I think, personally, after that, you would have movies that, if other directors of his era had directed them, that would be the one movie that they would be known for. would be like, oh, yeah. Great movie. This person did it. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but for Hitchcock, you know, that's his second tier down. I would probably include something like North by Northwest, probably The Birds on there as well. Um, how do those sound to you? Yeah, I can agree with The Birds and North by Northwest. It's really interesting having these different types of tiers, especially it's like a lot of directors, like they, there's some movies that they're just, that's the one thing they're always going to be known for, whereas Hitchcock, it's so interesting that it's you can have these debates in all these movies like, man, that's a good one. No, wait, this one's like, this is his masterpiece. It's so mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, there, there's no one else from that era. You know, for, for the cinephiles, you could probably talk about different directors where you can list rattle off, you know, half a dozen or so movies and call them all greats. And most people would be lucky if they've heard of, of you know, more than one or two of them, whether it's someone like Billy Wilder or um, I'm blanking on some other really popular directors of the 50, 40s, 50s and 60s. Uh, but they're it would be you'd be hard pressed to, to easily recognize more than a few of them. And I can think that's also like a testament of both Hitchcock, but also the power of almost popular culture at the time, because he had magazines and he had like kids books about him. That was just him, not like you couldn't see like someone like, I don't even like, it's like even hard to like think of someone at that time. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of cinephiles who like are screaming in their podcast machines right now. Like, oh, (laughs) there's like this, that and that. But it's like, if you really think about it, it's like, you know, having the face of like movies or just having a director kind of like right now, especially like with how we have movies now. And it's almost like the director is almost like a movie star in and of himself or herself. Mm-hmm. Which, which nowadays is, is completely commonplace, whether it's someone like Wes Anderson or, uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples. Or James of, Gunn, Taika Waititi. Yeah, those people where they're so, their personalities are so much interwoven with their work and we can't sort of separate the two anymore. Which is a unique thing, especially with Hitchcock, because I think him being able to kind of like grasp the popular culture with television, with Hitchcock Presents, 
it's like one of those instrumental things i think what kind of sets them apart to compare it to like not it's kind of like i won't say it's a rude thing to say but it's like i think his movies are going to survive a lot longer than a lot of movies that are kind of being swept under the rug which you would always consider great movies but it's like with hitchcock he's kind of a household name if you can get that household name and keep it like alfred hitchcock and walt disney i think you can do yourself a good time in cementing time yeah and i think you hit a very interesting point the further along we go where there is more and more immediately available to us at our fingertips that means unfortunately as older generations are dying off the less popular things are slowly going to get forgotten you know they'll always be there in the textbooks but as far as actually seeing it it's going to be a lot harder and, and movies from the 30s and 40s especially are going to be the next batch to go you'll be hard pressed to get more than a few people to know movies from the 20s which is really when cinema really started its run of popularity obviously it started earlier than that but other than you know chaplin or keaton or or dw griffiths there's very few directors in their works that are as well known today which sounds like a really weird thing to say like if you went and got in some time machine and went back in time and asked someone oh they'll always remember so and so like this, this one of the greats, and then you ask someone now, and like who? Yeah, um, and I think at, at this point now, as we're talking about, you know, what are the greatest remaining films in Hitchcock's filmography? All of them, I can start saying reasons why I don't, you know, overly love them. I'll I enjoy them, but I don't think that they're they're perfect movies you know as far as north by northwest i really like it but i find some of the comedy hasn't really aged that well uh the birds i find the special effects haven't aged that well i think the best shots in that movie are when the birds are are just menacingly sitting on things like filling the room or sitting on the the playground equipment i think those shots are the best in the movie and that was why it's memorable to me but the effects of them flying into a telephone booth yeah it's not that good i can't keep a straight face while watching that i mean that's kind of like the charm of it did you know there's actually a sequel to the birds is there there's a birds too it was only on like it was a tv movie oh it's it's only on vhs i have it it's downstairs and it's so bad it's really bad. Like, there's actually who directed it. Who's in? When did this? I need more it information. Might, it might as well be Alan Smitty. <laughs> like, I can't even. T- like, it's one of those. that's like direct to video DVDs type of movies. But it was one of the weirdest things I've ever watched in my life. Because if you like everything that's great about the birds, you've just thrown that out the window. And it's kind of like, oh, the birds are attacking again, and then that's it. Did they? Because I, I know. Uh, one of the biggest problems people have with horror movie sequels is when they try to explain things away. The birds was great in the fact that they never tried to explain the phenomenon, just that they suddenly showed up one day and then they seem to overtake the town. Does the birds too try to explain it? Uh, I have it. It's one of those movies where it has almost like one star on IMDb. Oh God. I, from all I know, it, it was like communists took over the birds brains and they hate everybody. It might as well be like that. <laughs> I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if they ended up making a sequel like that. Cause what did they make? Like four Jaws sequels, three Psycho sequels? Hey, I actually and- like the Psycho sequels. They're actually really, Do you? Yeah, they're really fun to watch. 
I've I've never seen them because every clip I've seen of it, it just looks so laughable. It's I think that's kind of like the charm of it though. But it's like one of those if you're if you just turn your I don't like using the turn your brain off movies, but if like you suspend your disbelief that this isn't going to be a good movie, you'll love it. Then again, you're talking okay. to a person that like personally loves terrible movies. Like last <laughs> night, I was just me and my friends were watching Hard Ticket to Hawaii and just having the funniest time in our entire lives. I've never even heard of that. Okay, so Hard Ticket to Hawaii is literally... It's hard to explain because if you look at the director's name's Andy Sadar, he's like this 40-year-old pudgy old dude. He like looks really sleazy, and that's exactly the type of movies that he made. So it's babes in bikinis. <laughs> what era is his stuff from? Late 80s, early 90s. Okay, all right. You then can, can buy all of his movies it. on DVD for like $4. And oh, the, yeah? And I think it's called The Babes Bikinis and bullets and g-strings collection that's literally <laughs> what it's called and it, like i have no shame saying that because i there i know what i'm watching and it's like one of those movies you put on just to have a good laugh because hard ticket to hawaii is one of those movies that my friend she showed it to me because it's some of the funniest dialogue ever in a movie i've ever seen like there's a literal scene with these two girls it's almost like do, it's like almost like do you know what maple syrup porn is no it's Okay, I, I'm wait. You're from Canada. It's one of the, so it's very like softcore porn. Okay, but it's like Canadian. Like they apologize, and it's it's one of the weirdest things. But it's like there's a part in the movie where it's like these two girls. Like we have to. Just, the whole movie is about like, a drug deal gone bad, and these ladies are like working for the FBI, trying to like bust these people for diamonds. And there's a part they're trying to explain their plans. Let's hop in the jacuzzi. They hop into the jacuzzi, <laughs> do maybe like a second of dialogue, and they hop right out. I'm like okay. Did it have to be in a jacuzzi? Well, now it is. <laughs> I think this was like the best sidetrack that this episode could have possibly gone on. That was great. Oh, it's, trust me, i full of terrible movies. Like that one was the one I watched last night because my friend, she suggested it. What you should do is, uh, <laughs> I'm basically having an on-air production meeting right now with you. You should start a podcast where you describe these terrible movies to someone who has never seen them, and they're trying to guess uh, if you are making this up or not, and it just gets more and more oh, do you incredulous wanna, as you oh, go on. Do you want to know the best part of the movie? So It's a monster movie. There's a snake that they have to transport. So the snake is infected with cancer infested rat so it's become a gigantic super snake <laughs> and they and they blow it up with a bazooka if you watch this it's like the worst snake you've ever seen in an entire movie <laughs> okay all right all right all right too much sidetrack i think you were definitely making this up by now no i'm not but yeah let's I, you know what? we should just go we need to get our feng shui and go back to hitchcock because <laughs> I think Hitchcock is like like doing like a nine hundred and twenty degree like spin in his coffin right now. I'm pretty sure he's powering my laptop. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So we talked about what are you know comparatively great movies of his era. Uh, some really solid ones, in my opinion. Uh, Dial M for Murder. I think he does some really great stuff with props. You know, like you're talking about playing with 3D at the time, which uh, at I'm, the time was just people like throwing rats at the screen. Or the only one that I actually recently saw because they just re they re-released it was uh the creature in the black lagoon was originally a 3d movie so the, oh, that would have been cool so all of the water scenes are all in 3d so it looks like there's a, a cube of water coming out of your screen it is phenomenal 
Interesting. Same as with House of Wax with uh, Vincent Price is a really, mm-hmm. even though you can watch without 3D, it's still a good movie, even if it's a movie for a gimmick of a 3D movie. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that one, and I can definitely tell what scenes were meant to be in 3D. Yeah, but it goes back to those things of just Alfred Hitchcock pushing the envelope on a lot of his movies. The same as with like North by Northwest, the scene that I always think about is the super duper wide shot of when they were in the train car and he like uh, lights her cigarette. Mm-hmm. It's like in, even at that time, that was like one of the, I think the widest shot ever filmed on screen at that time. Really, that's interesting. I want to say that I'm sure someone's going to correct me, but that's okay. Um, and then I think Lifeboat, you know, that's a movie that is definitely a little bit cringy at times. Is that the but, Titanic one? Uh, sort of. It's not, uh, it, not really. Because um, I know maybe- originally Alfred Hitchcock was uh, one of his reasons why he came to America was the person that, uh, the producer, I think he did Gone with the Wind. Yeah, it's David O. Selznick. Thank you. Uh, he told him, you come over here, you can make us our next big movie, Titanic. Yeah, I, I think that was what the plan was. And then he, he pivoted to make Lifeboat, which is about a group of survivors uh, on uh, on a boat where their ship had sunk. I don't know if it's supposed to exactly be Titanic. I don't think they na- they say it by name, but it's definitely inspired by that. Uh, I think there's some, some sort of cringy moments in that, but that's sort of like his bottle episode movie. I mean, that's kind of like the weird thing is, you know, Alfred Hitchcock obviously has hits and misses. And I think mm-hmm. that that's one of them. Uh, what's another one? I would, I would also maybe say to catch a thief. I think some of that, the, er, the, you know, the first third of it is really laughable when the police are all chasing after him and the thieves are throwing things at him. And, and then it gets a little bit better as it goes on, but it, it definitely starts out a little too ridiculous for me. Yeah, no, and there's like ones I would think maybe like Young and Innocent, which are like really like there's some parts in that movie that are very laughable, but maybe because it's like 1930s dialogue almost. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes that's the weird thing about film is like, oh, the all the dialogue's going to be timeless and stuff. It's like, hey, doll, you want to get a malt? <laughs> yeah. Uh, then do you have any other movies that you would, you would, you know, just classify as good if you're getting this deep into Hitchcock's filmography, uh, or, or worth checking out? Maybe the saboteur that might be mm-hmm. one to look at. Cause it was during the, it was 1942. So it was in the middle of world war two. And it's kind of about a guy that works in a munitions factory. Who's kind of framed for sabotage in the munitions factory. And it's a very good suspenseful movie. Foreign Correspondence is another one I'd recommend, especially like the opening scenes are really well done, especially it's very shocking at the time. And there's just the scenes in the rain. And I think it's one of those great like film noir type of movies because Alfred Hitchcock, you know, I wouldn't consider him like maybe like a film noir type of person, but obviously you could see the influence at that time. Yeah, he definitely has some movies that are, are more noirish. He sort of was most of his work took place after film noir was in its heyday. So I think that might have been him doing a bit of a, a retrospective of it, looking back and borrowing elements. I can't remember which movie it is, but like he would get writers. He also he got Raymond Chandler to do a script for him. So yeah, was that was that Notorious or was it a different one? I think it might have been Notorious. It might have been. I know 
he he also has a bit of an interesting relationship with writers where he never really worked with some for very long. I think he was too demanding of a writer between him and his wife, Alma, who was very hands-on as well, and I think did a lot of uncredited rewrites. Ironically, one of like the writers, because I, I have a really deep love for Ray Bradbury, uh, Alfred Hitchcock really wanted Ray Bradbury to write several movies for him. I want to say one of them is close enough to be uh, Psycho. I want to say it's in that time frame. But Ray Bradbury said no. Hmm, so that's interesting. And it was like a very like they actually like, they 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 spoke a lot. Yeah, I I really didn't know that. Were they? Did he like give him feedback on his films and vice versa about his? A novels? little bit like that. They were not, they were like less. They were more like casual acquaintances, or they might have been actual friends. Hmm. But it's like one of, of those things where uh, Ray Bradbury would they, he would go to his movies and stuff because Ray Bradbury was a huge movie fan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think a couple other decent ones that I'd throw out there would be uh, The 39 Steps in the original The Man Who Knew Too Much. I really didn't care for Hitchcock's own remake of that. Yeah, I. it's like one of those, I haven't seen uh, 39 Steps in a very long time and also The Man Who Knew Too Much. For some reason, I'm about to say The Man Who Knew Too Little, I'm like, wait, that's a parody. <laughs> yes. No, I like the original, the one with Peter Lorre. Uh, I thought that was a, a really good one. I'm also just a huge Peter Lorre fan in general. I think he was a really underrated actor and wish he, he was in more parts in English language films. Yeah, no, the, but the the interesting thing about Peter Lorre is, is like he you automatically know his profile. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those interesting things, but though he's in movies like The Maltese Falcon and he's in some very timeless movies. Yeah. Um, is there any movies of Hitchcock's that you say are not worth your time watching at all or just general ones you did not care for? Maybe I think The Birds at some times is kind of laughable, but it's like for me, the the group of friends I have, uh, we like to watch it. Maybe Frenzy, that was kind of like near the end of his career. It was like, I think, the mid-70s. Other than that, there's a lot of like ones that you could like easily miss. But, you know, going with the heavy hitters, it's kind of like early on in his filmography, maybe you can, you're, you're okay, like sparse it out a little bit. Yeah, I think once you get into like, you've seen about 10 to 15 of his movies, you start to get a feel of maybe which ones aren't worth checking out because you've seen all the great ones by then. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you, the interesting thing as well is like, you know, Hitchcock made all these movies, but you can actually see like the progression of his filmmaking with every film. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the only one that I would definitely say skipping is doing my homework for this. I, I watched The Trouble with Harry. Have you seen that one? Um, no, I actually have not actually seen that one. Well, I don't recommend it. It's it's a straight up comedy, which oh, was no. so so unsuccessful that he didn't attempt a straight up comedy again. Um, it's got the screen debut of Shirley MacLaine, who is the best part of it. Uh, but it's about this uh, old man who thinks he accidentally shot someone in the forest. And so he's trying to figure out what to do with the body. And then people kept keep bumping into this dead body. And they're like, oh, what should we do about this dead body? I don't know. And so they literally bury and unbury him three times because they keep trying to figure out what to do with his body. This sounds terrible. 
judging by some of the things that you've told me, you might actually like it. You know, probably, but like, I like movies. It's kind of like the weird thing of just like, watch. I mean, there's a difference between watching a bad movie and watching a movie that like, it almost feels like an alien made that kind of understands American movies. <laughs> or like if like an like a group of like aliens from Mars came down, like we're gonna make an American movie, or like you just watch someone like a great terrible movie is one you see that's like these people are failing on every single aspect of the filmmaking. It's like you know they spent a lot of money doing this, and it's like watching a train wreck. I guess that's kind of like one of the the themes of Rear Window is like watching a train wreck happen, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this one, you know, I read that. Hitchcock considered it probably his most personal movie in the sense of it was closest to his sense of humor, which at the time it might have been hilarious. But now that we are 60, 70 years away from its release, I don't think it stands up. Which is funny because there's a lot of like segments in Hitchcock Presents, which are hilarious. It's just him doing like deadpan humor almost. A lot of this humor attempts to be deadpan, but with the expectation of they know that they're funny, which is what I think doesn't work for me. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those things is like comedies are very subjective, especially comedies necessarily don't age the best out of any genre because a lot of them are like to the current time, like we're going to make a pop culture reference, that wacky Adolf Hitler. And then it's like now it's like, ooh, it shouldn't really. No, it's not funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think overall, his humor in his movies, I think, have sort of dated them the most and are sections of why I don't care for them. For each movie, I can kind of point to the humor as being issues that uh, I have with them. The more serious his films are, the more I seem to like them. You know, something like Vertigo has almost no comedy in it whatsoever, and I think it stands up the best as far as the the actual script and dialogue goes. Yeah, no, I think that the the great thing about Hitchcock is with his suspense, or like when he's not trying to be humorous, I think when it comes to his movies... Uh, when he's not humorous, he's at his best. Though, when he's himself, like, if you've ever seen... Have you ever seen the original trailer for Psycho? It's, like, one of the funniest things I've ever watched in my life. Because it's just Alfred Hitchcock going through the Bates Motel and then through the mansion. And he's just oh, describing yeah, yeah, everything. Yeah. And it's the funniest. It's like, when when he's himself, he's really funny. But if it's in a movie, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, I, I agree with that, yeah. So, if anyone's... Yeah, so if anyone's never seen the original trailer to Psycho where he's kind of explaining what's going on, watch it. It's a movie all in itself almost. Uh, I will say at this point that uh, it's in the show notes. Maybe it's not. Uh, If it's not in the show notes, I'm sorry, but I will do my best to include it there. Uh, I've seen it before and it is very funny. Um, Now we're going to take another short break And when we come back Going to just get into maybe some last minute movies That we didn't get to talk about and, uh, And wrap this baby up Uh, I 
guess, kind of lighten it a little bit. Uh, do you have any overrated and underrated films of his? I guess we'll start out with with maybe ones that are a little bit more overrated. I know that's a bit of a tricky question. Uh, I'm just trying to think. I think, I think there's like some that like, I think Rebecca's a little bit overrated. I think from what I've read about Rebecca is it was a completely different movie that was like chopped to bits and editing that Alfred Hitchcock didn't like. But it's like one of those movies where I think there's some strong parts to it, but I think the strong parts are just uh, kind of overshadow the movie in like there's a lot of dull moments in the movie. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, for me, I think it would be a, a tie between Notorious and The Birds for different reasons. For Notorious, I think that sort of heralded as one of his best earlier career movies. Um, and I find the first third of the movie to be a little too ridiculous for me. And then once it sort of actually gets into the plot, it gets a lot better. But because of that, I think Notorious is one that's kind of considered, that's, that comes highly recommended of his work. And then for The Birds, while I think it's still a really great movie, I think the way the special effects have aged in it, is one that I, I think makes it a little bit overrated. It's a very good movie, not the greatest movie for me. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the things. Like a lot of movies you would imagine are some of like, at the time is probably like cutting edge special effects technology. But now it's almost like laughable. Is it because we're so desensitized? So we're just like digital effects like reign supreme? Or it's kind of like those weird things of like seeing it like on HDTV and not like on a film stock where there's like a kind of like a film haze? Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of like one of those things, like, if you see it in, like, like almost, like, super hypervision, which is, like, a Blu-ray player, rather than seeing it, like, 20 feet back, like, thrown onto a screen, would it would it work differently? Yeah, I, I know that they rotoscoped the birds in for, like, the attack scenes, which, for its era, is absolutely mind-blowing, and I still think it's a very valid technique to sort of uh, overlay shots, but it just, you can really see where, how they are overlaying it. No, oh, yeah, no, there's, it's very laughable. I mean, then again, there's now a new movie that's kind of like that, that people love that's purposely about birds and really shitty birds. And that's Birdemic. <laughs> Not one that I have seen or probably would include in the, the love category, but I guess if you're a fan of that style of, of horror film, the horror comedy, you probably include it there. I wouldn't even consider it a movie, but yes, we'll, we'll keep going from there. <laughs> uh, do you have any underrated ones, maybe ones that you think aren't talked about enough or are only considered good when you think they're great? I think Rope. I think Rope is one of those movies that everyone should at least watch once just because of how mind-bogglingly insane it is to do like a movie in just 12 shots. If you watch like an average action movie now and just count the times they switch like different scenes, different shots and different, you know, ranges, it's insane. And then take that and then watch a movie that's only 12 and how how much work and craftsmanship has to go into just making a movie in 12 shots and it's all like in real time too. Yeah, it's it's definitely more shot like a theatrical production, but with the added benefit of being able to play with the set in a unique way. Yeah, I consider that one to be like one of the most underrated out of all of them. 
for me, I'm actually going to talk about two movies uh, we haven't talked about at all tonight, uh, and that's The Wrong Man and I Confess. I Confess probably having the worst title in his filmography, but I really enjoyed the performances uh, from Montgomery Clift in that movie. Uh, a really interesting movie about a, a priest who is conf- has someone confess murder to him right at the very beginning of the movie so you know who the murderer is. And then due to his vow of keeping confessions private, he can't tell the police and he eventually gets accused for murder and is up on the stand and can't say anything even though – it's not him. It's really interesting when the audience knows exactly what's going on, but we can't do anything to stop it. And it's got a really interesting performance from, from Clift. I know him and Hitchcock really bat- butted heads, uh, in regards to Cliff's, uh, method acting style. And he also apparently showed up set drunk every day too, which is interesting because I still think he turns in something really unique. And then the other one, have you seen that one? No, I have not. I actually, that's one of those that I haven't actually watched. That's not really, sounds like an interesting movie that I probably might actually watch after this. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I was, I was raised Catholic. I'm no, I no longer identify as Catholic, but I was something that being around that I definitely understood where these traditions were coming from and the sort of ideology behind it and, and knowing all of that I thought was really interesting to see. I didn't know that Hitchcock was actually raised Catholic himself too. Yeah. So he brought that into his work and was very particular about making sure it was done right. Do you know what Alfred Hitchcock's famous boyhood story is? No, I don't. What? So when he was younger, his dad was like this really stern man. I, I think Alfred Hitchcock was just misbehaving. So his dad took him by the arm, took him to the police station, told the policeman, lock him up. So they locked him up for like 10 minutes and it like traumatized him as a kid. <laughs> That's probably where he gets most of his fear from. It's like one of those interesting stories. There's actually a really great like thousand page biography that I read like a long time ago. And hmm. I'm sure if you type in Alfred Hitchcock biography that's long, it'll come up and it's this huge book just about his entire life interesting uh and then i guess that sort of plays into the other one i I mentioned the wrong man uh which has um oh i'm i'm blanking on uh who the lead in that movie is uh henry fonda who plays a jazz musician who is a you know teetotaler and he goes to the club plays his music goes back home is trying to put his kids through school and his wife needs emergency dental surgery and he accidentally is accused of being a uh store thief that he keeps knocking over different liquor stores and different pharmacies and things like that and stealing money from them and so he gets arrested and gets put on trial and all this sort of stuff and the whole time he is the wrong man. And so it's really interesting. It's probably the only Hitchcock movie with no comedy whatsoever. It is definitely his bleakest movie in his entire filmography. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe like a correlation between the time it was made and kind of like what was going on in the world. Maybe, yeah. And, and there's a really great shot where when he gets finally gets put in prison for the first time and the door shuts and there's no music and then you can just hear prisoners heckling each other off screen which was shot in a real prison by the way um and this sort of despair just sets in and you just like feel that immense weight on henry fonda in a way that he was so good throughout his career 
you know, that's like the interesting, that's like the testament of people's performances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm a big Henry Fonda fan. Uh, so that's definitely something I, I enjoyed watching. And then I guess my honorable mention would be Rebecca. So I was a little disappointed that you included it in your overrated. Oh. But that's okay. We we can disagree on a few things. Let's agree to disagree. <laughs> I really I really like the performances. And I also oh, really like there's some great scenes in Rebecca. I'm not like every movie. If you can find the great scene, like the scene where I, I'm so terrible with actors names, especially now uh, where they're sitting on the windowsill and she's telling her to just jump. Oh, yeah. And she's like, maybe I should do that. And then all it's like she kind of snaps out of it with the fireworks because the festival's going on. Mm hmm. Like that's, yeah, a that, that's a great really scene. Good one. Yeah. Um, well, I had a, a lot of fun talking about Hitchcock. Did you? Oh yeah, it was very suspenseful. <laughs> uh, you you brought up some great ones that I haven't seen yet, so that definitely has to go on my my must see list as I continue doing homework and event- eventually see all the ones like you have, or as many as you have at least. Yeah, I spent like a lot of time in my childhood or just my teenage years just watching movies. The amount of movies I've watched, both actually, there's like a little joke that I have. Like when I was 15, I watched every movie a person should humanly not watch, and I did as an idiot. Yeah, yeah. And before that, it was kind of like going through different phases of people. And Alfred Hitchcock, for like maybe 13, 14, I had just had this mania of trying to watch as much as I can. Except you know, being not with a lot of money at the time, being a teenager, I couldn't really afford to get some of his movies because some of them in his catalog are really expensive but thanks to like amazon or like places where you can just order them for like nickels now i think it's a really great thing and i'm envious mm-hmm. yeah there, there's definitely a, a great uh availability now due to technology and uh i don't know about where where you are but um up here uh a lot of the Critter Ion editions are available for free through uh, public libraries on their web portals. You can watch them. And so there's a bunch of Hitchcock movies along with all the other Critter Ion ones. Not everyone, but a good chunk of it. Um, I, that's something I can totally look into. I know a lot of his public domain movies you can just type in on YouTube and they'll just pop up. So a lot of movies from his, tw- like his very early career in the silent movies you can just watch. Uh, a lot of libraries do have a lot of, you know, Psycho, North by Northwest, like any of your famous movies you can easily find for really cheap too, especially on Blu-ray. Yeah. And I think Netflix has a couple. I remember seeing, I believe, Rear Window on there in the past. It might not be there anymore, but I've definitely seen it on Netflix before. Obviously, it's uh, subject to change country for country. That is true. You know, it's a Canadian talking to American. Who knows what I the difference is? I would be like, is. wait, what? Rear Window's on Netflix? I'm going to go watch it. And then like when I went to <laughs> Mexico, they had all the Gravity Falls. And I was just like, okay, I know what I'm watching. <laughs> I was like, man, Mexico Netflix is the best. <laughs> it was great until uh, they they started realizing my proxies and uh, would kick me out. So now I have to stick to just Canadian Netflix. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what happens when you try to use the free VPNs. <laughs> Oh, well. Uh, well, Zach, I want to thank you for, for coming on this show. Uh, I really had a great conversation with you. It was a lot of fun. It's a great pleasure to be on your show and talk about a director that I really, really love, who has a lot of love and is going to be one of those people that like you could talk about or just like 
go to a shower and people get afraid about and it's <laughs> well, like that's the great thing about Hitchcock. He set he made all these tropes that that he set those tropes that people try to copy from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so where can uh, all of my listeners find you and your work? So you can find me at Radio Camp Half-Blood, a Percy Jackson real-long podcast for me and my friend B. We read Percy Jackson and Olympians chapter by chapter. And we kind of break it down both literary and structurally. Uh, if you want to find me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Suda41. That's S-U-D-A-4-1. And those are primarily the places I will be. We record and re- have our episodes weekly. So that's that's good. That's great. Well, there's definitely going to be links to both of those things in the show notes. So make sure you go to liveandlimbo.com uh, where these notes will be. You can follow myself on Twitter at DGAPA, and you can also follow the show at Contrazoom Pod. The last few episodes I've mentioned, I'm going to mention it again. It would be great if you can check out podchaser.com. It aims to be the IMDb of podcasts. If you can give me a quick rating or even a little review, all you need is a Facebook account to sign in. And it would certainly mean a lot. This seems to be a growing site and I look forward to it. And as always, iTunes rating and reviews always help grow podcasts. So thank you so much for listening and thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Uh-huh.